Hello, my name is Dan Badger, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Words of Endearment with Bill Coker. We have another psalm to study today. Bill preached on Psalm 71 titled, Oh God, at World Gospel Church in June of 2001. The writing of Psalm 71 is attributed to an old man who traces his journey from birth through youth and until he is old and gray. It would be good for us to take time to write about our journeys and how we found salvation and continued spiritual growth by God's grace. Let's hear from Bill. Some of these summer Sundays on the Psalms, it's one that I have been reading through this past week and I have found myself uh, moved by this Psalm in a lot of different ways. And uh, I find it one that it seems to me is a sort of a special psalm in a lot of ways. I want to read to you the 70th, 71st Psalm. And if you'll take your Bibles and notice, uh, Psalm 70 and, verse, and Psalm 71 are very much alike to the point where they almost could be made one psalm. The title that it's given to, verse, uh, to Psalm 71, there is no title Rather, there is a title with Psalm 70, but not 71. And as I played with it, I couldn't help but think that maybe when the, the organizers of the psalm book brought this together, they did so with an intent that uh, somehow or another, these psalms just go together. It's not a terribly original psalm, uh, Psalm 71, nor is Psalm 70. It reiterates things that you can find in other places in the psalms. But I think that the writers brought it together for a specific purpose. Let me read for you. Verse Psalm 71. In thee, O Lord, do I take my refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In thy righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline thy ear to me and save me. Be thou to me a rock of refuge to which I may always go, which you have decreed for my salvation. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For thou, O Lord, art my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon thee I have leaned from the womb. Thou art he who took me from my mother's belly. My praise is continually of thee. I have been a portent to many, but thou art my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with thy praise and with thy glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of my old age. Do not forsake me when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there is none to deliver him. O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be enveloped who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise thee yet more and more. My mouth will tell of thy righteous act and of thy deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will praise thy righteousness. 
thine alone. O God, from my youth thou hast taught me, and I still proclaim thy wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Till I proclaim thy might to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Thy righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. Thou who hast done great things, O God, who is like thee? Thou who hast made me see many sore troubles will revive me again. From the depths of the earth thou wilt bring me up again. Thou wilt increase my honor and comfort me again. I will also praise thee with a harp for thy faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to thee with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to thee, my soul also which thou hast rescued. And my tongue will talk of thy righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disgraced who sought to do me hurt. Sometimes I just wish it was a classroom instead of a sanctuary. This is one of those psalms that I would just like to go verse by verse with you and look because uh, uh, it's, it's hard to arrange this in a, in a homiletical fashion and get everything in that I'd like to say about it. But you might be surprised to know that this is one of the very few psalms that's written from the perspective of an older person. A lot of times, and in our society today particularly, we tend to glorify youth. And we tend to overlook older persons. In some cultures, of course, older persons are more revered and uh, receive a lot more attention than they do in our own. But here is a psalm that's written from the perspective of a person who could say, I once was old, but young, but now I'm old. And as I look at my life and I deal with my circumstances, I want to tell you a little bit about where I am. It does, this does several things for me. First of all, it reminds me again of the fact that life is a journey and it doesn't stop when you get out of your youthful period. It goes right on down the line even to the days of old age and the gray hairs. Life is a journey. There's no stopping place on it. And when the psalmist writes about the deep concerns that are upon his heart, he reminds us that he too is faced with the business of living as much as a young person might be or a person in middle age who feels like they're in the time of great vim and vigor and life is so important and significant for them. We tend to forget that, it seems to me. We tend to think of, and I, I don't remember, I've heard so many times people talk about how difficult it is these days to be a young person. When's the last time you heard somebody talking about how difficult it is to be an older person? You don't remember? I dare say you don't because you don't hear that very much. And yet, that is a vital part of our life too because we come to the time of old age and we find ourselves facing the kinds of struggles that are not really distinct from nor apart from the struggles that we have at any period of time in our lives. And while we tend to overlook the difficulties of older people and, and focus our thoughts just upon younger people, even to the extent that when we deal with older people like parents who are, are struggling with problems, I listen to people talk about it and they talk about, oh, it is so difficult for me, for you. Just exactly what do you think it is for your folks? But we don't think about that. 
it's my problems, it's my difficulties, and I'm going through all of these problems, and we forget that the person who often comes to older age and battles some of the more significant physical struggles of life faces a struggle and a difficulty that we tend to overlook. So this is written by a person in an older period of time and saying something that it seems to me very vital to us to go back and look at because he's going to come at this from a perspective that is beneficial whether we're older or younger doesn't make any difference. And it's at this point I could really wish that I could take verse by verse and let you notice some of the nuances of these verses, some of the, the shadings and shadowings that have great significance, not only for younger people, but for particularly as we get older. Now, one of the reasons I think we like to go back and look at the Psalms, and I've said this before and I want to say it again, is that the psalmist seems to bring our, our religious faith out of the the bookish learning of academics and brings it right down to the real issues of living. He struggles. I was thinking as I was reading this psalm repeatedly this week that how many of the psalms talk about the enemies and those who are, are besetting me and doing this and that and the other. And as I thought about that, I thought, my, it's hard to preach on these psalms because it seems like every one of them, the person is struggling with something going on in life. And then I thought, Maybe that's not so far-fetched. At various times in our lives, our problems may be quite different so that a younger person is facing difficulties with some particular issues that for us as older people, that's no longer a problem that bothers us. And we struggle with problems that they can't even begin to realize. In fact, we didn't know very much about it until we began to experience those things. The psalmist is always very practical. Maybe that's why when I was in seminary, I remember being told in a homiletics class that very few sermons in any given year's time are preached from the Old Testament. Most pastors will take the, the New Testament and make that the focal point of their preaching. Even to the extent that some people claim that they are New Testament Christians apart from the Old Testament. And that's an impossibility. The New Testament makes sense only when you have the foundation that the Old Testament is laid for it. And what would we do without Genesis 1? No, these are important passages. Now, the one exception to that was that most pastors, when they preach, might, might preach some from the Old Testament. And when they do, they go back to the Psalms. And I was thinking about that again this week. Why is that true? Except that the psalmist is very practical. He's right down where we're living, and he's talking about things that we can identify very quickly. Not abstract theological discussions, but really down-to-earth things that we face day by day by day. And incidentally, before you get a negative picture about the, the preachers, I want to ask you, when's the last time you read Habakkuk? I know, you're saying spell it and I'll see if I can find it in the index. <laughs> no, we don't. We read the Gospels, we read the Epistles, and well, we should. But we tend to neglect all of those older areas as though they somehow are now not relevant. And yet here we are in the Psalms this morning, finding a person that could change places with me this morning and take the words that he has written and speak to you about something that's very, very clearly a relevant part of your life because life hasn't changed that much. 
There are several striking elements in this psalm that I want to share with you, and in the time that I have, I want to get you to think about these and take them home with you. The first thing that I notice about the psalmist is uh, the way that he speaks about God. You know, you can talk about God, and then you can talk about God. When you listen to a great theological debate going on, they're talking about God, but often they're talking about God in ways that the ordinary person may not quickly identify with nor even understand. But I titled this sermon this morning, Oh God. And every one of us understand it. You don't need a theology book. You don't need a seminary background. Oh God. I like the way he speaks about God because, you see, he's talking to him in the, in the sense that God is something that's very real to his life. The fact that God really exists and that he's not just simply a figment of theological imagination nor of rational explanation of how things came about without any kind of personal content to it. Several years ago, a movie was... Uh, was put out that uh, I'm sure many of you saw either on television or maybe you went to a movie theater to see it. The title of it was just simply, Oh God. And you might remember that John Denver was just a grocery store worker to whom God chose to reveal himself. And uh, John Denver then started talking to people about how he had met God. And God had spoken to him. Now, I agree that George Burns don't, doesn't look a lot like God, but that was the contact point anyway. And he was talking about how God had spoken to him and he had seen God. Nobody believed him, and finally they even brought him up before a panel to investigate this nut who was making such claims. And there on the panel sat one of the distinguished clergy of the area. And he thought he was nuts too. With all of his strong theology, the fact that God would have spoken to a grocery store clerk? So the character played by John Denver went home and he shared with his wife that God had spoken to him. He had seen God. And even his wife couldn't believe him. And he looked at her and he said, you're the believer in this family. You're the one who goes to church. And she looks back at him and says, well, I believe in God. I just didn't know he existed. There's a theology book for you. Yes, we believe in God. It's easy to make the affirmations of the faith. But the psalmist isn't talking about God in the sense, I believe in God. He's talking about God in the sense he really exists. He's there. And more than that, he's been a part of my life. So as we turn to the psalmist and begin noticing his words, the thing that we see again and again is that he can speak about God this way because God isn't just simply something that happened to him. God is something that's been present in his life ever since his very beginning. And he starts really there. When I was in the womb... And the Hebrew here is uh, debated as it is in several passages in this psalm. Some translate it this way. When I was in the womb, you sustained me there. 
You were the one who cut me loose from my mother's belly. So as he thinks about God, he thinks about not just simply one who exists, but one who is the key to existence and the key to his own existence. Now, I said that rather fast. But let me tell you, that's not a short step. There are a lot of people who can affirm that looking out at our universe, it must be something created by a God because look at the order and the design of it all. There must be a creator. But that's not the next step. The next step is that he is the key to my existence. Well, I can say that theoretically, but if I say that personally, then God is immediately transported from the pages of philosophical and theological disputations just down to the everyday life as I walk my journey and as I deal with life. God is the one who is responsible for me. The 139th Psalm, you remember, talks about how God forms and fashions us even in the womb. That's what this psalmist is talking about. Even there, I was. That's a message we need to hear today. That what is in the womb is an eye. Not a piece of tissue, an eye. And you sustain me there. I have a friend who's a pastor. Actually, he's a bivocational person. He made a statement to me one time. He said, you know, the whole argument about abortion was not one that I gave very much consideration to until one time my mother looked at me and said, you know, I had planned to have an abortion rather than bear you. And he said, you know, I've never been able to get away from that. Had I been aborted, I would not be. So the psalmist looks at his life. And he says, all that has transpired to bring me to where I am right now, beginning even in the womb of my mother, through those tender young ages as I was growing and developing and becoming, you were the one who sustained me. You were present there. So it's small wonder, is it, that this, this psalmist standing in his old age when many looking at him and, and marveling at the things that he's going through and suffering, so much so that he says, I become a portent. I become some kind of, a, uh, of an extraordinary sign to a lot of people, maybe because of his suffering, because they go on and say, well, you know, he's old now. God has forgotten about him. But the psalmist at this point can say, no, not at all. Oh, God, don't forsake me now. In fact, he says, my hope is continuing to be in you. But all of it began with that conviction that sometime earlier had become a part of his life, the conviction that God really exists, not theoretically, but is the God of his own life. As I was thinking about that this week, I thought, how, how important it is that we understand those of us particularly who have small children, the importance of teaching them not just simply Bible stories. Those are good. Not just simply having a devotional time with them. That's wonderful and good. But there's something that's needed more than that. Or certainly strongly in addition to that. 
And that's the fact of hearing mom and dad share their lives and their faith so that God becomes not just simply part of a Bible story, but he becomes a part of their mom, their their dad's life, so that in their parents they can not only sense that God is real, but they hear the testimony of what God is doing. The most important job, it seems to me, that a parent has is to live a life of faith so that that life of faith can come alive to the child. And and later when the challenges come and those who come around to say, there is no God, he doesn't exist, that child will remember growing up in a home where God was very real to a mom and a dad and a grandpa and a grandma where there was something that's real and alive. So as I read the psalm, it was interesting to me that here he is in old age crying out, oh God, oh my God, and yet going all the way back at the same time to saying, I have hope and I have trust, but it began when I was but a lad. As I thought about all of that, I thought about vacation Bible school coming up. Think about Sunday schools that happen here every Sunday. How easy it is for that just to become a program of the church. And it isn't that. It is a program. I understand all of that. But the Sunday school teacher who stands in front of his or her Sunday school class, that worker who is going to be working with children in vacation Bible school is not there to demonstrate what great biblical knowledge we have so much as that person is there to say, there is a God who is real and he's real in my life. And the value of some of us who are getting older is that we can talk to people about the ongoing journeys of life, even down to the gray hairs where God is real. What struck me about the psalm is that when he talks about God, he talks about God not just simply as existing, but he's a part of his life. And God is very real, present, present. Listen to his words. He's present, he's here. And also, he's a God in whom he can place his trust because this God is concerned about him and he's active on his behalf. The second thing I want you to hear from this psalm is the way that he looks at at evil. Now, that may seem strange to you, but I, I hope you can pick up my thoughts as I've been thinking about this psalm. First is the way he thinks about God. God is real, not just simply a theological figment but he's real. He's a person who's involved with my life. The second thing, evil is real. It is a dynamic factor in his life. Now, one of the things in the Psalms that struck me as I was thinking about this this week is over and over again in the Psalm, the Psalmist speaks about his enemies, about his accusers, about the the cruel men or the men who are the bullies and so forth and so on and the various names that are given to them. And so often as we read the Psalms, we think, I wonder who those people might be. But I hope that as we read it, we won't just think about those people, but we'll think about our own lives and say, well, what are the enemies in my life? Sometimes they may take personal shape like the man next door or the person who's a vital part of my life, my boss or something like that. But oftentimes it just simply takes shape in the fact that Evil is dynamically present in the universe of human beings. Now, let me tell you where I'm wrestling with in my own mind at this point. 
while on one hand we think of God as an abstraction a lot of times, rather than relate him to what's going on in my life. And, and I want you to understand, that's not just simply a, a sermon point. There are a lot of people who are trying to solve their problems independently of God, trying to work everything out and not making any room for God to be a part of that process. But at the same time, there are people who are dealing with evil in the world as though it is some kind of unnamed, supernatural, demonized power that sort of floats out here somewhere and doesn't realize that evil takes shape in human beings. I listen to people talking about how Satan did this and Satan did that and Satan did the other, and I have no inclination to deny the, the, the presence of Satan in, in, in the world. Uh, that's another theological discussion that we could make. But the thing that interests me is that the evils that this person is facing in older age are the evils that come through human beings. Now, let me, let me lay some groundwork because I want to say something very strongly to you. I read an article just this past week after the execution of Timothy McVeigh, and this sermon is not about capital punishment, so uh, that's another time and another subject as well. But this person, a guy by the name of Jonah Goldberg, good Jewish name, and I would assume that that's who he is, a, a Jewish person, wrote this article in which he said, we have been reminded by the liberal press that Timothy McVeigh is a human being, as though this is something that those who favor capital punishment do not realize. Now let's leave the capital punishment aside. But what he went on to say was this. We need to be reminded that Timothy McVeigh was a human being because the evil that we deal with in our world is an evil that is not some kind of an abstract force at work. It comes through people. And of all things that we needed to realize, he argues, we need to realize that this man who took 168 people's lives is a human being. Well, I had to chew on that for a little bit. And then I ran across another article by Joseph Sobrand. And Joseph Sobrand had an article that it was entitled Introducing Evil Again to Modern Man. And he began his article saying this, evil is back. In fact, in Newsweek magazine, there was the cover with Timothy McVeigh's picture upon it. And I have a see, haven't seen it. It's the, the photographic negative of this picture, evidently. And engraved across the picture is the word evil. But here's what he went on to say, and this is what struck me, and I want you to hear what he writes. True evil resides in every human will. We are all sinners. In most of us, evil takes the form of little corruptions because we lack the audacity to do the kind of evil deeds that make the headlines. Blaming monsters, and that's how we identify a Hitler or a Stalin, 
Blaming monsters allows the rest of us to become morally complacent, even fanatical, believing ourselves virtuous merely for opposing them. We may then fail to see the real evil in our own leaders and in ourselves. As I read his article, I thought, that's a preacher sermon. But it's taking a, a commentator to write words that are being left out of many, many church services. That the evil is not just out there or over there, and it's not just something we can lay at the doorstep of Satan and say, he's the one who's made me do this, or he's the one who causes it all. But evil is that which takes shape in human beings and in our own wills, the battle against evil is a reality. That's what Solzhenitsyn meant when he said that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every individual. That's where you are. That's where I am. This is the problem that we're dealing with. The psalmist sees it in the lives of those who have become such a problem in his own life, those who stand, he describes them as watchers of my soul. And as I read the words of these commentators, I couldn't help but think there needs to be a renewed vision of evil in the church today. My wife shared with me a tape done by Scott Klusendorf, who was an apologist against abortion. He made some statements that really struck me. One of the statements he made he said that it's interesting that in America, 75% of the American people believe abortion is wrong. 63% of them believe it ought to be legal. Huh? Wait a minute, what are you saying? Now, again, I'm not interested right now in debating the, the abortion issue. What I'm saying is it's interesting how we have separated the idea of evil and legality and right and wrong in such a way that we are not dealing with the evil that actually exists, and more than that, we're not calling it that until there's somebody who blows up a building and 168 people are killed, and then all of a sudden, here is an evil person. Hitler's an evil man, and yet the sins that may be in your life and my life are just simply pushed aside sometimes for sheer convenience. And while the psalmist is writing as an older person, maybe we ought to skip from the other end of abortion to the end of euthanasia, where now they're talking about putting us to sleep when we get older for the convenience of it. So we won't be a bother anymore. And even some of us saying, well, maybe that's the way I ought to go so I don't bother anybody else anymore. And what Klusendorf was aiming at in the lecture that I was listening to is the very thing that I thought of when I was reading this about the psalmist. Evil is something that is real, that until we deal with it, not just simply in other people, but we see it in ourselves. Now, 
we fail to see the reality of it. So I look at the psalm and I say, boy, I'm struck by the fact that he sees God and he believes in God, not just simply that God is, but that he really exists. The way he speaks about God struck my heart. The way he speaks about evil strikes my heart. And it makes me realize that this is a part of life's journey. It's a thing we wrestle with, whether we're young or we're old. It's a thing that ought to be a part of our lives. That's all the more reason why, as young people, we need to come to God and we need to clarify that relationship with him when we're young. So that was the second thing that struck me. The third thing that struck me was that as he encountered this evil in his older age, he encountered it not as a bystander, but as a person who was involved himself. Now, I want to give you a couple of verses, and I hope this really comes alive. When you look up early on in, uh, in the psalm, he's talking about the things that are happening, and in verse 7 he says, I have been an enigma. I have been a, a portent, and, and that may be something good. I'm an illustration of goodness to others, but but it's probably meaning others are looking at me and saying, why are you suffering so much? Look at all that you're going through. You're supposed to be a great man of God. You're supposed to be a follower of Christ, and yet look what you're suffering. So he says, I'm an enigma to people. But the next line says, but thou, but thou art my strong refuge. So on the one hand, here is God, and God is involved, and, and in the struggle that's there, even in the midst of the sore trials that he's passed through, God has been a real person. But what I wanted you to see, and along with that, if you'll drop down in your Bible, he says in verse 13, may my accusers, would you like to know the Hebrew word there? Satan, my, the Satans of my soul. That's exactly the Hebrew. Satan, my accusers. So we tend to make Satan some kind of a supernatural over here on the side. He's saying the Satans in my life are these people who are really right there dealing with me. Now he's not denying ultimate evil or, or, or the things that are out there supernatural. He's talking about his life. And he's saying, this is what I'm encountering. So he says, May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be enveloped who seek my hurt. But I, what struck me was the comparison. At one hand, he's saying, but thou, God. Now, on the other hand, he's saying, but I. And here I see a psalmist who has entered into the journey of life, realizing that while God is there and he is real and he is his refuge and he is his strength and it is in his grace that he finds the rest and the comfort that he needs, on the other side of the coin, he says, but I have a part in this as well. I'm involved in it. And so when you look at the psalmist and he begins talking about himself, he, he starts talking about his trust in God. Somebody has said that the pivotal point of this whole psalm is there in verse 12 where he says, Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. If that's the pivotal point of it, what I'm trying to say is that what the psalmist offers as a reason why God should be there in his life at this point and why God should make the haste to meet him in his need is simply the fact that he has trusted in him. I have lived out, in other words, my relationship with you. 
I think the one thing preachers hate the most, I wish I could tell you this in words that, that says everything that, that bounces around in my mind and in my heart right now. This is so tremendously important because what we see in so many instances are people like Den Denver's wife who are affirming a faith that never really gets down into the nitty gritty daily concerns of their lives. And as a consequence, there are so many of us who are seeing in our families, we're seeing in our personal lives, we're seeing in our communities, all kinds of breakdowns and, and terrible things that are taking place, and, and yet never coming to the place of asking the question, but where is my confidence in God? How am I living that out in the day by day? What difference does it make today in my life and in your life that God exists? What difference does it make that he has made us, formed us, fashioned us, been present in our world from its very beginning. What difference does it make today for you and me? Does that, can you feel something of that even if you don't understand what's bouncing around in my head? That's where the struggle is. And what struck me about the psalmist is that realism with which he comes to God, the realism with which he sees the evil that exists around him, and, and it's a part of human experience, but right in the middle of it, he sees, how do I address my journey, my life, in the light of these two real things? And he, he comes back to say, it's my trust, God. I'm living every day as though you really are. From my youth, I've trusted you. Then the second thing I noticed that he's saying is that he, my hope is continually in you. So that the psalmist isn't just simply fixing his eyes on the problems. The problems he knows are there. And he doesn't say at any point that God is not God simply because the problems are being there. The problems have been there. I'm wrestling with these things. But in the midst of all of my struggles, I'm trusting in you. But in the midst of the struggles, my eyes are not on the problem. My eyes are on the hope that I have in you. I'll continue to hope in you because you have been faithful and you have blessed me more than I have ever understood. I can't even number all of the things that you're doing. Do you see what's happening? He faces the struggle. He's in the midst of the battle. And while he is in the midst of the struggle, the thing that carries him through is that his eye is not on the problem. It's on the hope. God is. And God's going to see me through it. So as an old man, there's a passage in here I'm going to read as a Christian and not as an ancient Israelite. But in verse 20, he says, Thou who hast made me see many sore troubles will revive me again from the depths of the earth thou will bring me up again thou will increase my honor and comfort me again and as a christian we read this passage of scripture and says oh there's more there than the psalmist ever knew because when jesus christ was raised from the dead the message of that resurrection was one of hope that transcends the present problem, the present moment, or even what will happen today or tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. It talks about what ultimately is our hope and what God is going, yet to, do, going to do yet for us. It's a promise. Today, I'm 66 years old. It's hard to believe it. 
66. I'm just grateful there's not another six on that. <laughs> but you know, the thing that strikes me is not just simply how rapidly all the past has happened, but how the journey of life is still going on. And it's a good journey. And I don't know how long it's going to last. But with this psalmist, I can come with an understanding of something he said that he never could have believed when he said it. And that's the fact that God himself took on our flesh so that he might bear our sins, might be crucified, dead, and buried, and rise from the dead to say, there is a hope that transcends even the sword trials that we face today. So in the midst of all of this, the psalmist says, I rejoice. I shout praises. I sing for joy. I give thanks to my God. And you know, it just seems to me that that's, that's an infectious thing that ought to be multiplied in churches today where when we come to sing our praises to God, it isn't just simply hymn number something, something in a book, but it's really just an, ex an opportunity to express the joy, the thanksgiving. Hey, we're alive. Some of us have a few more aches and pains than we used to have. But that isn't where our concern is. Our attention is upon him who is our hope. And in the midst of life struggles, we find more than victory. It's a beautiful psalm. I hope maybe this week you'll take Psalm 71. Read it a few times. Listen to the psalmist. And find your own strength in what he says. We take just a moment as we normally do. To ask God what he wants to say to us. And I want to cheat a little bit and suggest that if you're a young person and you do not know this God who is so real, you're squandering some of the most important days of your life right now. Because unless you yield your heart to him and allow him to be the God of your life, you're going to miss in those older days something that would be much more precious is if, in, if in the younger days you had come to know him and learn to trust him. Some of you are in the midst of your middle years, and life is fraught with all kinds of questions and struggles, and some of us don't know what tomorrow might hold in terms of our job or maybe even in terms of our health. But what a wonderful time to discover there is a God upon whom we can lean for sustenance, a God who is able to bear us up just as he formed us in the beginning. And I notice that some of you have few whiter hairs than I've got. This psalm's for you, too. The journey isn't over. It's still going on. And the struggles of life are not just for other people. How well you know that. Now they take on a little bit of a different dimension. We know what the psalmist meant when he said, Oh, God, don't forsake me when my strength is failing. Because we find the truth of that simple statement. 
our strength does not hold as once it did. And yet God holds as he always has. So as you pause for a minute, may I challenge you to ask God what above everything else he would like to say to you right now in light of the words of this psalmist. Thank you for listening. Please send any comments to Bill and Ann by email. Their email address is in the show notes. We would love to hear your feedback. We encourage you to check out Bill's books also listed in the show's notes. We hope this time has been a blessing for you, and you will tune in next week for a new series on prayers of the Bible on Words of Endearment with Bill Coker.